Hello and welcome back to the Red Sector, a podcast about speedy motorbikes. On today's episode, we continue our Behind the Paddock series where we help you get to know the people that you hear and see throughout the MotoGP weekend. I'm your host, Matt Polanski, joined as always by the walking, talking MotoGP Wikipedia page that is Bono. Josh is taking tonight off, so let's get to the guest. You know this person from their highly rated Paddock Pass podcast. You can hear them commentate through the Moto E, Moto 3, and Moto 2 sessions. He's the bass to Matt Dunn's soprano, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Neil Morrison. Hello, sir. Hello. Yeah. Hello, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. No, it's thank pretty you. late where you are. It is a little bit late, although I'm usually uh, a kind of a late riser, so this is... Uh kind of active time for me normally. So you've caught me at a good time, I would say. Um, thank you, both of you, for having me on the show. Um, mm -hmm. I think we've been trying to make this happen for a while, but finally getting mm -hmm. around to it at the end of January, just before the season kicks off. So thank you again for having me on. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's, it's kind of that lull before the season starts. So this is usually the best time to get stuff like this happening before the busy season starts. Exactly, yeah. Because once the season starts, you don't really r realize it, but um, you just f get yourself into a rhythm where uh, you're working and traveling so much. And anytime when you're not doing that, it's like so sacred. And it's like, I don't want to do anything else <laughs> yeah. at that time. It's like, I have to lie in my bed and I have to just do nothing and completely reset the mind and recharge, you know. So, uh, yeah, this is a good time for sure. Are you? Is that like a subtle hint to us then to be like, I didn't really want to be doing this. I want to be in bed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Like, no, no it's fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think usually after a race weekend, if it's been quite busy, lots of stuff has going, been going on, uh, yeah, you kind of need to, like, lie down and just, like, sit and, yeah, recover, really. Yeah, your brain is like, it's like your brain takes in so much information that you just have to have a few days where it's like nothing is happening. There's no stimulation, that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and it, it takes me a bit of a, a bit of time just to, to recover from it, really. Yeah, um, obviously my brain isn't that big, so it needs time to recover from these kinds of uh, events, you know. Yeah, so uh, we're going to start this interview like we did with every interview with the quick fire questions. <laughs> um, nothing too taxing or, you know, mind-boggling just some uh simple questions uh first one what track not currently on the calendar would you like to see moto gp go to um it, we don't have to think about health and safety we can just no it's like, like, it's like if they changed it to regulation of you know right i guess like in a hypothetical situation i'd probably say like salzburg ring um a place oh. that they used to go to like back in the day um yeah i've just seen like kind of old videos off it and read riders comments off it but that was a mad mad place mm. essentially mm -hmm. just like uh just like basically two long straights uh with a v at either end and you would like kind of go up and down a mountain on each straight with armco barriers ridiculously close to the side of the track mm. um that seemed like properly mental um, Would I not be right in saying that McDoom was the last winner there? I've just looked up the track. I'm trying to remember. I, I believe you're probably right. Yeah, I think it was 94 the last time they went there. Um, and doing, I think yeah, you'd be that, right. that was like one of his two or three favorite tracks. Like he absolutely loved that place. 
Um, and yeah, I think just to, just to maybe like watch at the side of the track, that would be pretty, pretty visceral experience. I would go with the Salzburg ring. That's a great shout. Mm. I like that. I think when you, when you said S, I was expecting Spa, but Salzburg ring is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole host of places I'd love to, I'd love MotoGP to go to, like the old Hockenheim or Spa, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Salzburg Ring, I think just it's like in the, the middle of a valley. It's got kind of Mugello vibes and dangerous as hell, like stupidly dangerous. But if we're sort of imagining a nice hypothetical yep. world where no one is going to get hurt, then uh, I think that would be a pretty cool place to maybe bring a few cans and just sit at the side of the, the track and watch things go by. I feel like Ducati would quite like that track for some <laughs> some reason. I can't quite point <laughs> yeah. out why, but... Um, exactly. If you could change one rule or regulation, what would it be? Again, very hypothetical. It could just be for fun or it can be like a legit, you know, health and safety thing you need, you think needs addressing. Um, it's a good one. I mean, if we're going like completely hypothetical again, mm-hmm. we could maybe like change things up quite radically. I mean, is that a lot? Yeah, yeah, do literally whatever you want. Mm, yeah. Um, well, I quite liked, you know, when you read those stories about like the old American flat trackers and like back in the 60s and 70s, like the AMA National Championship was like a series of different disciplines. So you mm-hmm. had flat track or different types of flat track, you would have like a kind of kind of motocross event and then you would have like a road racing event like a circuit racing event mm. um so yeah i think like why not just introduce something like that like a, a gp would not only consist of like the the grand prix on sunday we would have like a motocross event on the saturday we'd have a flat track event on the friday maybe we could even throw in a little kind of isle of man tt style <laughs> time trial around some of the local roads uh, leading huh. up to the track as like a sort of pre-event and then you at the end of that you would get a definitive kind of idea of who is like the, the best all-rounder um right yeah so and you know just that would be pretty random wouldn't it It'd be pretty crazy so uh mm-hmm. yeah, i'd be all up for that that's a great idea can you imagine that that is uh, that would be awesome See, that's where if that was the thing if that was like <laughs> around maybe like 2016 onwards Rossi probably would have got a tenth world title, like flat tracking. The guy's <laughs> rapid at like forty-two years old. The guy's still completely whooping people at flat tracks. Obviously, he's, he just does mm-hmm. it like most days of the week, doesn't he? So he's pretty right, quick on a flat right. track. But yeah, but again, like yeah, there's, yeah. there's some people that are just rapid on like <laughs> like an MX bike and whatnot that are in GP that have come from motocross and like Lacona came from. Um, Oh, what is it? The mo- Supermoto. Supermoto, yeah. Like, he's fast uh-huh. on Supermoto, like, you know. So, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, great yeah. Let's, let's throw in a Supermoto event as well. Yeah. I mean, make it as all-round as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the last song you listened to or book you read? Uh, last song I listened to was... Um, I was watching a documentary on the Beach Boys today, so it would have been something off... The Beach Boys, maybe I think some nice. head songs. The last book I read, last book I finished was um, I don't know, man. Like, just do you sometimes as you get older, like go back and listen to some of the things that you liked as a as a teenager? Yeah. Uh, I've kind of been doing that recently. I don't know why, getting all like dewy eyed, nostalgic. Uh, I used to like Sonic Sonic Youth quite a lot, uh, the band Sonic Youth. So I read 
their guitar player's autobiography, uh, which is quite interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So yes, uh, that was Kim Gordon, I think it was, that wrote that. So yeah, it was good. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, nice. I can guess the answer, like we can for most um, guests, but four wheels or two. I mean, do you really need to ask the, that? The reason that I think the reason <laughs> that it gets asked though is that, like, for example, Fran, she came from like a four wheel background, so it's like as much as she's a fan of two. Like she's still got a massive admiration mm-hmm. for four, but some people are like, you know, screw four wheels completely. So, yeah, I wouldn't be so like uh, vociferous. Like some of my colleagues are proper, like you know, cars can go and die essentially. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not quite as, as vociferous, but I would. Uh, although I sort of keep an eye on Formula One and you know like to keep sort of loosely up to date with it. Um, a lot of things about I, I don't like. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely a two wheels guy. Always have been. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Moto three or one two fives. Ooh, um, <clears throat> that's a good one. Uh, I would probably go with Moto three. I know it's like pretty. It can be really frustrating and like kind of scary. I think I feel like Moto three's got a bit. Over the last couple of years, it's gone from being like the most exciting championship in the world to just being like, um, I'm actually quite worried about some of these guys here, which mm-hmm. is never really a nice feeling and something you probably shouldn't be thinking about Grand Prix racing in like 2022. Um, but for the sort of racing, I mean, it, it is it is ridiculously close and random and varied. Uh, 125s was always kind of fun, but... It was just a big disparity, I think, with uh, with a lot of the bikes there. So yeah, I think I would go with um, I'll go with Model Three. Good reasoning as well, to be fair, because that's the only thing mm-hmm. I think that pulls me away from One Two Five is the fact that as good as it was and as great as it sounded, like sometimes you would have some races where <laughs> you kind of have packs that separate a lot, which is all right, but like that very rarely happens in Model Three. So you always have battling and whatnot. Aye. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Coke or Pepsi. And I did not intend for you to get this yeah. one. <laughs> Coke or Pepsi. Matt, Matt sees this as a huge personality trait if you pick one or the other. So, Oh, really? Uh, honestly, I don't really drink either. Uh, I don't drink like kind of soft drinks at all, which I don't know if that's straight vodka. Kind of I think, yeah. I think yeah. everyone we've asked that question to has re- responded by, well, I don't drink fizzy drinks, but... <laughs> I watched like a documentary, maybe it was that Super Size You documentary and someone mm-hmm. in it was talking about Coke and I was just like, nah, man, like, I, that's, I shouldn't be doing, I shouldn't be putting that in my body. Um, and I'm not like a sort of uh, vegan, like kind of, I, I eat a lot of crap, I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like sort of fizzy drinks don't really do it for me. I, I've got to be honest. As you say, uh, Bono, more a straight vodka or straight whiskey kind of guy. Nice. Yeah. Respect it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two stroke or four stroke? Uh, this is like uh, nostalgia against, like, you know. Yeah. Nostalgia performance. Performance. Performance or practicality. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've got to go with nostalgia. I've, I've mentioned already, I've been on a kind of nostalgia trip of late. So, um, yeah, two strokes were obviously. Um, bikes uh, whenever I was growing up and 
there's just something magical about the smell of a two-stroke and the sound of a two-stroke. I don't know. There's just uh, something in the right sort of setting can send shivers up your spine. And uh, there was just something a bit like, a bit gnarly, a bit, uh, a bit scary about them. Like, you know, you get on, but are you going to be able to get off? That kind of thing. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. I think that was, you know, I think, 500 racing was at its most exciting when there was a real element of like you have to tame this kind of yeah, wild beast. unruly beast whereas MotoGP bikes now like sure they're incredibly complex and difficult to ride to the absolute limit but um, there isn't that sense of oh will I will I break my collarbone you know um, mm-hmm. uh, this next exit so I think that was kind of something that was quite alluring about 500 racing so I'd say the, uh, the the two strokes for me. I think as well, two strokes back then, you've got to realise <laughs> taming it was a whole other thing because the technology to keep riders safe was a lot less than as well. Like modern day, if you were to make that same bike, you know, falling off wouldn't be as bad because you have the technology of like the airbags in the suits and whatnot. There's a million times better than what it would have been back then. But at the same time, the bike didn't have anywhere near the technology that, the bike. the bike now has like a brain doesn't it or is it didn't really have right back then. right mm-hmm. yeah yeah no electronics i mean you know that's uh that's a kind of radical thought for this day and age yeah um moto 2 or 250 uh so i know this is going to sound a bit silly after the logic i gave for the moto <laughs> 3 answer but 250s i think were just like so delicious like they were works of art uh, and they were sort of like par to uh, weight ratio. I think we're just kind of like considered perfect racing bikes. I don't know, when I was a kid growing up, like 250s were always my favorite. Um, I used to have like a mad obsession with Max Biaggi's like 250 bikes in the 90s. Mm-hmm. They were just so pretty, the uh, Aprilia's with Chesterfield sponsorship. I was literally about to say the um, Chesterfield uh, 250 is like yeah. iconic. As well. Yeah, yeah. I still think maybe one of the most beautiful bikes ever built like it's just delicious with the number one in the front um i remember seeing that for the first time in the flesh i think john mcginnis raced at one time in northern ireland in like a little short circuit event and it was like whoa it's like just a beautiful bit of construction you know and again mm-hmm. with the, the two-stroke thing the smell the sound uh used to be great racing always guaranteed in that class maybe not so much in the 250 world championship towards the uh, the final days when there was a you know, unless you were on a, a factory 250 Aprilia, then, you know, you didn't have a chance. But, um, yeah, there's something about 250s. Again, it was like that thing when I was growing up. That was the sort of the, 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 the super close class to always keep an eye on. Uh, dead or alive, pick one rider you'd want to go out on track with. <laughs> um Well, I don't think I would be much trouble for any uh, fast rider. Um, so I guess we're we're talking about someone that uh, I don't think it's to race. I don't think it's to race. I think it's more just like if you could sit behind somebody on track with or something. Or... Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, like um, maybe I would say. I mean, you would probably have to go with one of the lads that's like just a sort of super talent. Like uh, I don't know, maybe a Marquez or a Stoner. Or a Freddie Spencer, maybe like those guys, just to probably marvel at some of the shapes and uh, mm-hmm. uh, that they would make. Um, 
yeah, I guess one of those three. Who would I choose? Maybe Spencer, just for the old 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 school old school uh, element of it. But yeah, I think um, just from what you could read, what you could even see in like those old videotapes, like uh, he was pretty special. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember hearing someone say something about watching him at Brands Hatch one time, and they said like you know a lot of the guys were doing things with the rear wheel that you were like. How do they do that? How do they keep that bike under control while it's sliding? But with Freddie, and he was only like a teenager when they saw him at the time, it was like, how is he doing that with the front tire? And you think of how like sort of basic or rudimentary bike technology was back in that time, like mm -hmm. the 70s, early 80s. And he was he was doing stuff that no one had even dreamed of uh, of doing before. So yeah, I think I would say him. And if you look at the bike that like in 83, I think it was, that he won his first world title, like, you look at the bike that that guy's riding at that age and what he's doing with the rear of that bike. It's like mm. absolutely nuts. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, inline four or V4? Mm. I wouldn't have a. I mean, are we talking just like um, I'm a team manager and I want to. Whatever it, pick it could the most be. Likely it to... could be... Most likely to win. It could be which one you prefer the sound of, which one you prefer performance-wise. Or... Yeah, maybe a V4 just for its kind of rasp. It sounds like kind of a bit scary. Um, and, yeah, I think if you were to pin your hopes on how to win a championship, maybe you would build a V4 over a, an inline four at the moment. I'm not sure, though, saying that Yamaha won it last year, but... Uh, yeah, V4, I think, just for the, the kind of the concept, there's more of a teaming element there, which I think is quite exciting. Nice. Uh, 500cc, 800cc, or 1,000ccs? Well, it's definitely not going to be an 800cc. I can rule that <laughs> out with a big, massive red script. Our, our other co-host, Josh, his favorite era is the 800, so I don't think he'd be happy to hear that you've said that. Is yeah, he's, he's a huge mm -hmm. really? fan, yeah. Without wanting to be rude, uh, <laughs> did he watch much of the 800cc racing? Because <laughs> it, was, it was generally quite boring from what I could see. There was the occasional great race, I think, but... Um, 800 cc era was generally like it was just full of the leader kind of stuff, wasn't it? Um, so, but yeah, I think I would have to go with the, the 500s back in the day when I was like first getting into the sport. Um, it was watching like 500s, it was watching that great era that you had at the end of the 80s with all these superstars, um, sliding the rear wheels off, uh, off their kind of uh, off their bikes. Um, and I don't know, yeah, just. Growing up in that era, there's a kind of magicness or <clears throat> yeah, mystique as well to it. And the, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like riding on some of those old tracks that were so dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I still look back at that era and think that that was maybe the the absolute golden time. I think you know, in terms of variety and, and competitiveness, uh, current day is probably better. Like you know, we've got a wonderful spectacle at the moment, but um, yeah, just because it was what really drew me into the sport. When I was a, a wee lad, uh, the old uh, the old five hundreds man, you just uh, you can't really beat that. I don't think. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. um, favorite corner on the whole calendar. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Uh, favorite corner on the whole calendar, I would probably say uh, Stoner Corner at uh, Phillip Island. 
um, just because it's like, uh, you know, you're usually pretty busy during a race weekend, um, and there are few opportunities to go out and watch trackside. Um, but Phillip Island is obviously a magical track just because of its layout and its setting. Mm-hmm. But you can also get ludicrously close to the track with, um, you know, if you're, I think if you have a media pass or a photographer's pass, you can go up right to the sort of railings on the inside of the track. And Stoner Corner is a wonderful place where there's a little Marshall hut right at the apex of, of turn three. And the guys are kind of like coming downhill from the exit of turn two, pointing right at you. And you can stand right at the barrier. They're kind of coming right towards you. And then they're like buzzing by, obviously. And they're just like kind of going to the exit of the, the next, the, the outside apex, just like completely sideways. And it's a wonderful place to watch. Like it's, it's really 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 impressive and you know just gives you uh sometimes you know watching on tv you don't pick up that real yeah. sort of like visceral impression of speed but that is like whoa okay that's pretty special and it's fast you know it's and it's it it looks like they've got this big thing to aim at but when you're there you know mm. it's just this little narrow piece of tarmac and it definitely gives you that sort of um yeah you walk away from it sort of in awe you're just like these guys are are mad and you gain a lot more respect when you're, at, when you're at the side of the track that is for sure um matt yeah. just quickly note uh-huh. down get media passes for philip island for this year just so that <laughs> yeah hop on exactly yeah i'm yeah, sure yeah. that trip will be easy <laughs> sell the car sell the dog more mm-hmm. is the house yeah it'll yes. be worth it <laughs> uh, this is uh one of josh's questions but uh this is not here i'll ask it Flag to flag races, yes or no? Yes, a hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if it was an everyday occurrence, if we had flag to flag races every weekend, then it would quickly lose its uh, mm-hmm. uh, lose its appeal. I feel, but uh, the fact that we have one every couple of seasons, sometimes the fact that you just have the a kind of a given order and it just gets completely turned on its head, I think is uh, is great entertainment. Um, it's a very efficient way to uh, maintain timing schedules in a, a kind of a schedule that's getting ever busier and ever more crowded. But just in mm-hmm. terms of the drama, I think the last couple of flag the flags we've had have been have been great. Like um, what was it? It was um, in Austria last year. I was going to say you can't really watch that uh, race and go, no, I'm not for flag to flags. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's bin it. Yeah, let's get it yeah. off. I mean, I think there's been a few, a few times where there's been a, an interesting race brewing, and it sort of maybe has deflated the thing. Was there was a year where Marquez pitted a lap before yeah. or two laps Bruno. before everyone else? Eighteen, 18 was it? I think. I think it was eighteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was. Or, yeah, um, and that just became a procession afterwards. But I think generally, flag to flag racing is is pretty cool. Yeah. Adds another skill set, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that whole, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of, these guys are all brave, obviously, but there's a whole other level of braveness that I think uh, is required to be successful in those kind of settings. And you've got the whole mental game as well, because it's easy to follow somebody right. in. Like, you know, if Mark would have gone early to sort of bait everybody else to go in early, but trusted his riding to go early in, in Bruno everyone could have then just sloped backwards or Mark could have took too much of a risk and played a bit of a curveball and it could have backfired. So you've also got that mental game of like trusting what you know is right and then also the the mental skill of knowing when is the right time. Because it's like 
Miller and Rins, I think it was, that pitted early in Austria, they were like, yeah, that's the right time to come in. But was that a case of mm. that's the right time or was that the case of I'll go as early but at the right time as possible, but actually it backfired? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think it was quite wet enough mm. because they pitted for wets and it was only when, you know, the, the leading five guys pitted that the rain really started falling, you know. So I think those first laps were... In that instance, they were like, um, you know, they were on wets on a dry track with a, a bit of spit, you know, a bit of uh, a bit mm-hmm. of um, light rain drizzle. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's um, it's uh, it's always just fascinating to see how it can. And I thought it was really interesting last year how Mark was always like the king of those kind of situations, just like unprecedented. Kind of levels of success in what is kind of a random situation but clearly him and his team just had this knack and he had this kind of incredible skill set of being able to bring his tires up temperature and all that stuff but then when we had the 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 flag to flags last year he, he kind of got caught out by it which i thought was interesting just because it was almost as if you have to be absolutely operating at the top of your game to be able to, to master those conditions and uh, you know last year he wasn't so um yeah, no, I'm, I'm all for it. I know some people are, are violently against it, but I'm 100% for it. Just on that point as well, if anybody remembers um, Mark's qualifying lap at Bruno, I think that was 2018 or it could have been 2019. It um, was 19. Yeah, he was mm. on slick tyres on a soaking track. And that is probably, I'd say, in I don't know how many years now I've been watching GP, but I'd say that is probably one of if not the best qualifying laps I've ever seen. Like, if anyone hasn't watched it, just put in Marquez qualifying Bruno or something, it will come up. And I still, to this day, don't have any clue how, A, he put it on pole, B, he kept on the bike, and C, he beat, like, I think he beat everybody by at least, was it, like, 1.4 seconds? or Two seconds or something. Yeah. Mm. It was a heavy time. Like, the, the best qualifying lap I think I've ever seen. So, yeah, just thought I'd mention that because it was perfect timing for mentioning Mark's skill on a wet track. Yeah, there's a glorious uh, slow-mo shot of him coming through the final Mm. uh, left-right before the start and finish straight. And it's a bit of a twitch, isn't it? Hammering down with rain. Yeah. Yeah, and it is pissing down, like proper lashing down, and he's on slick tyres, and he's just fully (laughs) committed. And yeah, 2.5 seconds, I think he was clear off Miller. God. Which is, you know, for qualifying is pretty mad. So, yeah, yeah that uh, that clip actually popped up on MotoGP subreddit like about a week ago. Oh, really? And just wa- watching him go through there, and like it, it was like the last three laps, and you could just hear Steve and Matt like getting more and more excited every <laughs> lap because he's like, oh yeah, he's got the pull. And now he's improving by a second. Now he's improving by another second. Mm. So it was like, I did I, because if you had mentioned that before I saw that clip, I would have never <laughs> seen knew what you were talking about. But just because that clip popped up, I know exactly what moment you're talking about. And yeah, that was pretty. That was insane. And I, it, I'm trying to think which is more impressive, that or Bender. At Austria, I think winning a race is obviously more substantial. But just when it when in, when you've got pole to to push to that extent in those conditions and mm-hmm. whatnot, and I'm not saying that that then means the Marcus thing is better than because I, th- I still think I picked the Binder thing over Marks. But 
credit where credit's due. I just I just remember watching that that qualifying session, and I think I was sat with my dad, and I remember my dad like every corner, probably saying what everybody else was saying, like surely he's got to fall off. Like, he, there's no way. Like every single corner, like how is he even even just the how is the bike upright, and how is it not not be able to lean that far over? But again, mm-hmm. that's that's credit to Mark because people were saying, you know. He got the conditions and the tyres right. It's like, well, if that's the case, then why come out? How come everybody else out on track, as of right then, couldn't be anywhere near him? They weren't even within two and a half, three seconds or whatever. So that's Mark doing what Mark does. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. I remember his manager, uh, Emilio Alsamora, who isn't a man that possesses a great deal of charm, um, even in like superb kind of victorious circumstances he was berating mark after that he was like what are you doing like taking all that risk for like just to improve your pole time when you're fighting for just stupid and it was if you think about it it was stupid but it was just remarkable and he was uh, Mm -hmm. you know i think i don't i still think mark might be the favorite for this year but um i don't think he'll ever quite reach 2019 levels i've said the exact same thing yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i think who knows? Yeah, I mean, people who are counting him out, I think, are a bit daft. Personally, that's my opinion. I think they're a bit daft. But um, for me, Mark, I don't think I can ever see him get into 2019. Because that, that level was just... I think that's a combination of his injury and everybody else. Just, you know, I don't, I don't think it's just hmm. Mark or whatever. I can't see him going every race, first or second, barring one. And that one being one where he was mm-hmm. five seconds in front. I can't see that. But you never know. Um, Last one of the uh, quick fire questions is orange sectors or red sectors? Uh, well, uh, through fear of uh, being booted off this uh, fine <laughs> podcast uh, prematurely, uh, I feel that I only have really one option. Um, there is a metaphorical gun being held to my head uh, as I <laughs> contemplate my answer. So I'm going to have to say red sector. I mean, that's the, that's the only answer really. I thought after right? that you'd say orange and I'd have respected it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just call ended. Yeah. That would so be, guys, that's that been it. the episode. Uh, <laughs> hope you enjoyed. <laughs> oh, that's it. Have fun. <laughs> but yeah, so that's it for the quick fire. So we want to get to know more about you. So where did you, or how did you get into mm. motorsports? What sparked your interest in motorsports? Uh, I think it was through my uh, family and sort of family friends. I'm from Northern Ireland, and uh, you know the the island of Ireland is kind of like crazy. I would say it's a pretty pretty popular sport there. You would have maybe football, rugby, soccer. Sorry, rugby, and uh, I call it football. Then, do you? Good man. Yep. Yes. So you'd have those sports, obviously, I think, as, as the top two, maybe golf as well up there. But I think motorsports and particularly bike racing is, is really popular there. So when I was a kid, uh, I would sort of go to road racing, local road racing with my mum and dad, go to the Isle of Man every year with my dad um, for a wee trip. He would manage to uh, put in a pretty good excuse to my school teachers for being off school for a week every June. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I don't know, just as like I kind of got older, I got really, he kind of develops uh, obsessions, don't you, as a kid, you know, whether it's music or, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had lots of different things that I was interested in. But yeah, bike racing was just always something I really liked. Um, and yeah, my parents were 
were doing that thing, you know, um, it was kind of like a social event going away to a race wherever it was in the country, and you would bump into the same people there. Um, and it was a, it was just a fun day out. It was usually a good crack. Uh, so yeah, that was that was kind of it. And um, strangely, there was a like a petrol station or a gas station like about two minutes away from my house, and the uh, the owner of that just happened to be like a massive bike fan, and like. This is pre-internet days, obviously. This was back in like VHS tape days. Ask your ask your parents, Bono, what that <laughs> means. Um, Not that young, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, so he would sort of stock his um, he would stock his petrol station with like this like sort of video rental section. There would always be like bike tapes there. Um, so as like a wee kid, I uh, was just constantly like asking, you know. I'm, I'm like, oh, can we get this? Can we get this? And it would be like a, a review of the whatever, you know, 1990 German Grand Prix or something like that. So, yeah, and through these tapes, I was just like, you know, the colours and the spectacle and the, it was just, it was a pretty cool thing, great show. And, yeah, so I guess through those two things, yeah, going to local road racing and then just, um, you know, seeing the old tapes of uh, 500 racing back when I was young, that's kind of what got me into it, got me hooked. I'm assuming you've been to the northwest then a few times. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I used to go to a lot of the races in Ireland, Northern Ireland anyway. Um, not so much down south. But yeah, we would go to the northwest every year. The Ulster Grand Prix is always a good one. Um, TT as well. Yeah, the big three. Um, yeah, last few times I've been, it's always been utterly crap weather, and that's just like kind of starts to grate as you get older. You know, sitting with like a I remember going to the TT one year with my dad, and I think we went over on a Thursday to see the Friday, the final day of racing. And then we were going home Saturday morning, and we sat on a bank from like 8 a.m. on a Friday morning until like 6 p.m., and then we saw one lap of racing in that. And my dad had spent all this money getting us <laughs> over there. And we basically had like just got soaked, basically, for a full day. But we still came away like, oh, wow, that was cool, you know. I don't think I would be quite as enthusiastic in my mind, but that reminds me of um, Silverstone 2018, sitting in the rain for about four and a half hours waiting for an update just to uh, conclude the whole weekend with no racing. So I can kind yeah, of sympathise yeah. with you there, um, as well, well as the fact it was a grim day. Yeah, it's a very grim day, as well as the fact I think I'm pretty sure every every time every year I've been to any British race it's rained for at least two thirds of the weekend. So yeah, we, uh, we sympathize with one another on the, uh, on the wet scale. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, just exactly. on that yeah. point then with, with the, uh, the whole VHS thing and whatnot, did you gain any idols or inspirations like racing heroes as a kid who were your main ones growing up? Uh, as a kid, it was, um, Joey Dunlop, uh, famous Northern Irish. I thought it would, thought it would be, yeah. I would. Yeah, I think if you were born on the island of Ireland and you had an interest in the sport, I think he was one of the, the top guys you would always look up to. Pretty unique character as well, just like a regular sort of. Yeah. He was just a, a regular guy in many respects, but he was pretty cool. Um, and Kevin Schwantz, I think, was was the other one. Uh, yeah, just the Pepsi Suzuki logo got me when I was first watching VHS tapes and then, you know, the stand-up celebration and just as what was riding. Um, yeah, Swans was always just uh, absolutely old to watch. 
So, um, yeah, I think those two guys were the ones when I was like a real young kid that I was like, you know, I, I kind of idolized. It's crazy to me that like so many people idolize Schwantz and like on just from my point of view, I'm, I'm born after Schwantz was around. So like looking back, I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely unaware or anything like that, but the guy, you don't, uh, you don't see many people that have like won one world title. And I know he, he won races years prior to that. And the whole rainy Schwantz was a big thing, but like so many people admire Schwantz and it's sort of like, you know, there, there are bigger names in terms of like winning um, and just in general, their, I don't know, just kind of their reputation. But Schwantz, I don't know, I think he's just got this sort of aura about him that intrigues a lot of people and brings a lot of people during that era in. I'm not sure what it is, but yeah. Yeah, he was just always like, he was always box office. You know, he wasn't the most consistent guy. But I think Doohan said that he was the fastest guy he ever raced against. And you think like, well, if Mick Doohan says that, like he must have been really fucking fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just that kind of thing where, you know, it, it was back in the 90s or sorry, the 80s. You know, you didn't have people doing these kind of crazy celebrations. And he was just like larger than life, both on the bike and, and away from it as well. I think he was a bit of a wild child as well, like to like the bevy after his race win and um you know you hear some interesting stories about what you get up to after races that he had won um so yeah i think he was yeah yeah he was just yeah you had to you had to watch him mm. and i think when you've got that divide no matter who it is even if it's not a rider that you necessarily support if there's a divide between two riders you all of a sudden, when you're on the fan side of it, you, you start to like pick a side when it's like Rainy Schwantz or if it's, you know, Rossi Gibbonow or whatever rivalry you pick out. There's always one that you end up sort of, even if it's not all the way in, you're sort of like, oh, if I had to pick one, I'd pick him. And at the time, obviously, Rainy and Schwantz, you could definitely say they weren't best of mates. So if you were a Schwantz fan or you were a Rainy fan, you kind of took to them even more because if you weren't seen as like a Rainey or Schwantz fan, then you were sort of seen as the other one. So you had to be like, pick a side and run with it. So yeah, Schwantz and Rainey didn't really get on, but they do now, don't they? They sort of put it past them or whatever. But I look at clips back and they fucking hated one another when they were racing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of funny like uh, podium photos when they're both on the podium and obviously one has beaten the other one. One has won. The other one is second or whatever and just looking at the rider that finished second's face it, it's just always entertaining just how it, it looked you know as if someone had like shot the dog or yeah that, the that's literally like know. biagi and rossi mm -hmm. when you know when, like you see like the handshake photos and you could see rossi's face like really smug and you could see biagi's like got a gun to his head almost to be like shake his hand you know come on get on with one another and it's sort of like they do <laughs> not want to do that at all it's it's just all sort of you know say the right things, don't say this, don't say that. But yeah, these photos right. are very yeah, yeah. very good to look back on because, like I say, they definitely didn't get on, did they, Schwantz and Rainey? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've never ridden. Was there a reason why you didn't choose to try to participate? Um, I don't really know if there was a reason. Um. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess when I was a kid, I always sort of wanted to do that sort of thing, but it, it just was never like a an option, I guess. I mean, if I probably incessantly screamed at my mum and dad to, you know, buy me a bike <laughs> when I was a, a kid to go and like race, yeah, yeah, maybe it would have happened, you know, but yeah, just never really occurred. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would have been really much good to be honest. But uh, but yeah, no, uh, there's no there's no real standout reason, you know, that uh, like uh, I didn't race. But I don't know. By the time I kind of hit the teenage years, you know, your your sort of interests uh, go off in different directions, mm-hmm. I suppose. And yeah, I don't think I would have made much of an athlete when I was a, a teenager or you know, present day, I don't think I would have made much of an athlete. So, um, yeah, a whole host of reasons, I would say, that uh, meant that that never happened. Yeah, no, no straight vodka in uh, many athletes. I can't, <laughs> I can't see Ralph Fernandez today <laughs> yeah. as we're recording. Yeah. Um, first day back at Sepang. I don't think Ralph Fernandez has been on the, uh, straight <laughs> vodkas, but you never know. Exactly. Um, yeah, he's not, he's not going to sit down to have a beer after testing. Yeah. Exactly, which is a damn shame. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose, if anything, you're probably happier to be on this side of the fence if you can uh, have those luxuries in life. But of course, of course. Um, <laughs> just moving forward, then um, for people listening, would how would you describe your sort of I don't know, maybe like the the catalyst of your entry into what you do now? So like, obviously, your what would you class your job as? Because you're like you do a lot of like journalism and whatnot, but you do commentating and stuff. So, like, where did that all kind of start from? Um, well, obviously, I kind of explained to you that like, I was uh, I was a big fan, um, <clears throat> and I always had a sort of interest in in writing as a as a kid. Um, so I sort of had like a rough dream of maybe you know riding about sports or something like that one day um and i guess i was like in my mid-20s and i was writing for um like this cultural magazine i was kind of trying to build up like a portfolio of writing and doing different things i, I started out like, doing some teaching um when i left like college and university and uh i was like right i want to be a writer or write about something so i was writing about crap really you know just like uh culture i art um different things and i remember uh doing an interview and i just thought i'm so far out of my depth that i really don't know that much about what i'm talking about or asking about um and you know a lot of people or people listening to this podcast will say how things have changed uh, in the subsequent years um <laughs> but uh yeah i, I kind of just thought right i i should probably do something or write about something I feel I kind of know a lot about, you know. Um, so I just started writing a few things for um, Crash.net, which is a British website, and they published some of it. They published, they didn't publish other parts of it. Um, and I think it was 2013. I was living in Spain. I was working here as a teacher, and uh, I said to someone at Crash, just like maybe I could go to. The Aragon Waterboy race and cover that weekend for Crash. And the person who still remains a good friend, um, their editor, Pete McLaren, was just like, Yeah, okay, cool, why not? So I kind of showed up at Aragon without absolutely without a clue of what I was doing. I was just like, um, 
Okay, so I guess I'm here. Didn't know anybody in the industry. I didn't know. I didn't know one person that kind of worked in superbikes or even worked in Grand Prix. I was just there on a, a wing and a prayer, basically. Um, I was uh, <laughs> I, I used that um, couch surfing app. I was pretty skint at the time as well, so you know, um, paying for my trip to Aragon, which you know wasn't a load of money, but still at that time it was like, oh god, I need to stay in someone's couch to make this happen. Um, cool. And uh, with World Superbikes at the time, it was weird because like there's just not a lot of um, of journalists that go to races there. Um, so I showed up and there was like, I kind of went up to a few press officers and just said like, could I maybe interview someone? And they were like, oh yeah, I remember speaking to the Honda press officer at the time and he was like, well, do you want to speak to Jonathan Ray? And I was like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, and just thinking like I would have no chance in hell of, uh, of doing this, speaking to these guys, but it sort of, it happened anyway. Um, so I started off doing a few World Superbike rounds, um, and that happened in 13, 14 as well. And to be honest, by the end of 2014, I was sort of just thinking like, this is not really going anywhere. I wasn't really making any money. Um, I just had that feeling that I wasn't getting noticed or no one was really seeing things that I was writing or whatever. I was thinking, right, I need to reevaluate things. And then, um, yeah, just a few kind of chance incidents occurred. I was sort of friends through Crash.net with another journalist um, guy, Steve English. He was working at MotoGP oh, yeah. at the time. And he um, was asked by Matt Oxley to uh, help him out with some magazine reports for 2015. And then Matt Burt left MCN to take the Dorna commentary job and MCN hired Steve. So then Matt Oxley said to Steve, hey, like, you know, you can't work for me. So do you know anyone that could maybe do some stuff for you? And Steve very kindly recommended me. And um, yeah, and then through that, I kind of got into the MotoGP paddock and got accredited. And uh, yeah, that was nice, you know, and, and I was very fortunate to be sort of working with um, really nice people when I first arrived, like Matt Oxley, like super nice, uh, generous and offered up some work and you know I think once he saw after a few races that I wasn't a complete idiot I sort of had a general idea of what was going on I think he started to think okay maybe I can push a little bit more work his way and introduce him maybe to one or two other people and I mean you know it takes time to sort of establish yourself or, or for people to know your face um, in the paddock um, but uh, I mean it took a few years but then I think it was 2018 Dorna asked me to do some stuff with their commentary, just, you know, practice sessions for Moto2, Moto3. Um, in that time, we started up a podcast, the Patapass podcast as well. Um, and yeah, just that, that, that's really it, I suppose. Um, uh, that's a kind of uh, long-winded explanation. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was basically, I would say, two and a half years of getting paid absolutely nothing. Uh, Anytime you thought you had done something interesting or, or, or cool, you would post it and you'd be like sitting online on Twitter waiting for interaction or waiting for waiting for <laughs> something like waiting for the thing to pop up and be like, whoa, what a cool feature or what an interesting interview. And then that wouldn't happen. And that's like quite deflating. And as I said, you know, there were sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, what am I doing this for? You know, putting all this effort in, paying money to go to races and so on and so forth. I was teaching at the same time as well, and I felt like I wasn't really 
paying that much attention to my job uh, at that particular point, my full-time job. Um, but yeah, just a few lucky bricks, I guess, at the right time, and uh, was able to get in, get a foot in the door. So during that 2015 season then, when you kind of entered the GP world, what, what was it that you were doing specifically? Was you just like shadowing Matt or just... So I was um, writing for Crash right. still. Okay. And I was doing some work for an American magazine called Road Racing World. I was sharing right. uh, race reports with, with, um, with Matt Oxley on that. Um, and then, you know, as the season went on, I started maybe contributing a few features to MCN Sport. That was a magazine that was still on the go at that time. That was like a sort of features and interview magazine, uh, looking at the world of MotoGP and stuff. And um, yeah, it took a little bit of time to get up and running. I think I started that season, first half of 2000, uh, 2015, I was still working as a teacher and I was having to get very creative when I was uh, telling my bosses why I couldn't do classes on uh, Thursdays and Fridays anymore. Um, and I think they were starting to suspect that something was, uh, something was up. Um, seems to, but then I kicked. It seems to be a bit of a theme throughout your life, doesn't it? Just like, no matter whether it's <laughs> yeah. teaching school or being in it, you find a way to just avoid being there. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, funny story, actually. I remember... This was back when I, I think it was maybe the second World Superbike race that I, I went to and I was working in like a, a business school. I, I did a bit of um, teaching in Madrid for a couple of months and uh, it was a, a really awful, terrible school. Um, you know, a place where like people would avoid looking at you. And uh, I remember going there into the, the staff room because they had a printer and I was printing off a boarding pass to fly to Lisbon because I was going to the Portugal World Superbike race. <laughs> and for some reason, it just wouldn't, I couldn't, like the printer wasn't printing. And I was like, okay, well, this is useless. I came into school for no reason. And uh, then I sent a creative email to my boss to say, I won't be able to make class tomorrow. I'm sorry. Uh, and I think I, you know, I'm, I'm sick. And uh, she got back to me and she was like, are you sure it's not because you're going to Portugal? Um, because uh, this, this, this boarding pass came out, came, you know, came out of my printer in my office uh, yesterday saying Neil Morrison's going to Lisbon tomorrow. Um, you know, what, what's the deal there? And I was just thinking, oh, God, this is, this is bad. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, I mean, it, I don't feel particularly bad because it was a pretty crappy school. Um, but, yeah, that was, uh, that was one instance where I was found out. Finally, after so many years of scapegoating out of school, you've it's got all caught up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So out of... Um, yeah, so... Oh, go on then, Matt. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. I was just about to say, um, <laughs> out of those... I mean, it's kind of hard to say because obviously you've, got, you've still got a current employer and whatnot, but out of those um, different kind of people you work for leading up which one do you think was the most important to sort of not like you know spear your journalism into a, a direction of motorsport but like was there anything that sort of okay that that's you know that's that's been the most important thing to sort of leapfrog into the, the motorsport world um i would say a few things probably that um mcn sports magazine yeah. was uh, was one maybe um, just because you know I think you had to not just put in an interview you know you had to be sort of quite 
creative or, or well-written things, features. That was, I think, kind of cool, maybe. And, you know, uh, from that whole, like, start, I was sort of teaching myself how to write, you know. I, even though I wanted to write a lot, I didn't do a lot of sort of writing outside of, you know, school or university when I was a, a teenager. So I think my early 20s, I was still, like, sort of teaching myself how to write. I still am, I guess, to an extent. Um, but, yeah, I think that magazine was probably pretty good. And then, I guess, like, probably Crash on there, just because it's got a fair, it's fairly well-known. Contacts as well, um, yeah. Yeah, and it sort of surprised me that you could go to teams and say, hey, I work for Crash.net, and they'd be like, oh, right, yeah, cool, yeah, come on, please, yeah, you know, ask this, or, yeah, you want this interview, cool, no worries. So, um, you know, it was, I guess it helped being associated with that name um, for a while, um, and that opened a few doors in, in some respects, I guess, with, with regards to teams, and, you know, sometimes I would be doing an interview with a writer, and they'd say, oh, yeah, that, that website, yeah, I always use that website to keep up to date with things, so... Um, yeah, I guess those two things were probably quite helpful. And how long did you do um, MCN Sport for? How long did you do that? I mean, I was always just like a contributor there. Um, so that was, I think, second half of 15 and then through 16. And then I think the magazine, maybe it took like a sort of different direction and maybe they just used their, their kind of in-house writers uh, to contribute to it. Um, so yes. you must have made some impact because I remember when your when you were commentating on warm-ups when that started to be brought when BT like we discussed before we recorded when BT uh, the BT Sport British broadcaster for everyone listening um, when they stopped <clears> having <throat> warm-up commentators on and they put through the live feed the world feed of like Dawner's commentators and Neil was commentating like I remember my dad being like, I swear I recognize your name from somewhere. And then he clocked. He was like, I feel like he's written the MCN uh, magazine before. So for you to only be there for like basically like one season put together, you must have you must have done all right for uh, people to recognize <laughs> your name. So, nice. uh, it's, uh, it's very nice to hear. Yeah. Just thought I'd, uh, <laughs> just thought I'd mention that because I remember him saying it. And yeah. But anyway, Matt, nice. I'll, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll shut up now. You can ask. Uh, <laughs> so. You uh, you said about how you started commentating. What what led to you getting into the booth, and what all goes into that process? Uh, so, what led to me doing that, I think, was um, the podcast I do, Paddock um, Pass Podcast. We started doing that in two thousand and fifteen. So, the first year I was working in the uh, in the championship, um, and I. I guess someone at Dorna just heard, listened to that, and uh, and, and you know the, the kind of free practice sessions, warm up sessions I do. You know, it's not high intensity. We have to commentate these laps like they're the last laps of the race. You know, it's more discussion based. Mm-hmm. We have to be creative. We have to think up of topics because it's not always the most exciting thing. You know, watching Model Three machines lap. Sepang on a Saturday morning, you know, when it's drizzling, isn't always, you know, the most uh, frenetic uh, watch. So the, the, the kind of person from Dorna, who, you know, obviously runs MotoGP, their sort of MO to me was like, well, you know, we might need someone that can just talk at length or discuss different things and that kind of thing. So I think it was through the, the podcast, really. Maybe someone had listened to that and they thought, okay, this guy can spout shit for... Hours on end. <laughs> Let's get him <laughs> into the box. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, and then what goes into it? I mean, I guess listening, I do listen to other sort of commentators that I like and try and pick up on things. Um, like I think, you know, Steve Day, who I think you had in the show recently, mm-hmm. Matt, Matt Burt, uh, you know, they're a f- fantastic combination, just how they bounce off each other and they kind of have slightly different styles to an extent, but they just work really well together. Fontaine's knowledge as well. I always think you just have to, you have to teach people stuff that they don't know. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than watching some uh, broadcast and, 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 you know, not learning anything. I think that's, uh, that's always terrible. So I always try to, yeah, I guess it's, it's standard practice, isn't it? But you just have to put some, put some research in, you know, and you go into a race weekend, you think on a Thursday, right. I'd have to have a few, at least a few things to talk about tomorrow in the, in the commentary booth. So you try and find out stuff. You go around, maybe and ask a few questions to certain teams or riders, maybe about the previous race or someone's picked up an injury. Someone's talking to another team, trying to get out of the contract, whatever it is, try and find something that you can talk about and explain in a kind of clear and coherent way. I guess that's sort of, that's the, the MO to a, a certain extent. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we started doing Moto E, I think, in 19, the first year of that championship. And that was something completely new for me as well, because it was like, OK, you have to be excited. And obviously, I don't have the most excitable voice. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty chill and pretty mellow. So trying to work on that and understand that was, uh, that was another thing as well. So, yeah. I struggle with the same thing. I, I always sound really... When I listen back to myself, I'm like... <laughs> How does how does anybody even bear listening to this for two hours? I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, some yeah, some, yeah. some crazy people out there tend to. So yeah, you got two of us this week. <laughs> two people that have got really low, <laughs> deep, uh, deep voices. Yeah, send you off into the most uh, wonderful <laughs> yeah. sleep talk. Yeah, and then you've got Matt that's like. Bang, bang, bang. I'm like, I've said to Matt on numerous occasions, like, I can't have that same energy when introducing a show. So I can't be like, hey guys, welcome back, whatever. I need that American sort of, yeah, like, you know, patriotic sort of boom yeah, to, enter the, the, uh, <laughs> enter the podcast. Yeah, we're quite. We're quite self conscious in the, the British Isles, aren't we? Like, we're, I don't know. We don't like yeah, to be too um, out there, do we? Yeah, too animated. Yeah, it almost goes against the, yeah. you know, how we were brought up. Especially, I mean, I don't, I don't want to stereotype, but being Northern <clears throat> Irish, you're, you're very much so, like, you know, reserved, like typically reserved. It seems I don't, I've not, not met many Northern Irish people that are very like extroverted. They tend to be very like, leave me alone. <laughs> 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 yes, said in a threatening. Threatening voice, obviously. Yeah, I'm not even going to attempt the accent. Let's move on from that <laughs> very swiftly before I offend. Well, anyone. I'm wondering if it. I'm wondering if it's something with the name because while Bono has me, you have Matt Dunn to bounce off of. So, what's that relationship like? Because, like you said, you're very laid back. You're very mellow. Where Matt is very upbeat and cheery, and you know, getting everybody excited. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess we uh, we're quite different in how we approach things. Yeah, um, but I think that's it's that's good. You know, if we had two people like me, then it would be maybe a bit. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't work that well. Um, but yeah, Matt uh, asked like a little 
a little firecracker you know he's always uh excited and i think that's that's good um because you you want to listen to someone that has enthusiasm and has excitement as well in the box um so yeah it's cool and i think it's always important to to like the person you're commentating with um i've been quite lucky in that the people i've worked with generally have been have been really cool and and signed and you do end up spending a lot of time with each other especially when you're traveling uh on a normal season when you're doing the the back-to-backs in asia and australia you are not just spending a lot of working time together you spend a lot of time away from the track together as well and you know it's 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 good to to work with someone that you have a a really good relationship with so um so yeah it's it's cool i think matt can add a bit of a uh, bit of dynamism and uh you know when we go to moto e races for example you know i mean he's i can't get that level of excitement you know on a sort of last lap battle and i feel that if you want to watch an exciting race you want to have someone in the commentary booth that is conveying that excitement i, I kind of know i can't do that so um yes yeah, so i think i think matt can do that pretty well uh, in the races what are we races and i think he does red bull rookies as well you know he can sort of inject that uh excitement into affairs which is pretty necessary i think a good um Probably a good analogy for that would be like Keith Ewan and Toby Moody is like what Matt's like to the Julian right. Like Julian's very informative, very, you know, kind of waits for them to have their energetic bursts to then just slip in some information or some like observation. Whereas like they're very like, you know, full on. Um, but it is good for you just on that point. I think what's really important is when, you know, when you listen to some people and you can sort of tell that they've never really been in a room with one another. It's very like, it's very stiff to listen to, but you know, you guys having that chemistry to, you know, spend a lot of time with one another away from the, like the recording and whatnot and the the commentating and whatnot is massively important because that then means that you don't get in the commentary booth and you're sort of like, you're all right, like, yeah, yeah, I'm great, thanks, how are you? You know, it's just, you're carrying on, like, a conversation almost. So when we listen to that, exactly. it's almost like we're part of that conversation. We're not sort of observing the conversation because you want to feel like you're part of it or, like like you said earlier, you want to feel like you're learning something, not like you're listening to a one-on-one forced, stiff conversation. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't... Uh... I don't know. Um, yeah, with the, the chemistry thing, I think, is, is important as well. Um, and yeah, it's pretty clear pretty quickly if there's, there's not a great deal of chemistry or if the people aren't, they don't really like each other, you know. So I think that's definitely important too, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of chemistry, the chemistry that you guys on the Paddock Pass podcast have is next level. The way you guys mess with each other, you know, screw you know screw with each other is it's next level so how did you guys come to form that podcast because you said you know you met some of the people just from getting into the paddock but how did that come to be uh yeah that's a that's a good question i think it was back in in like 2014 2015 um david emmett of com, and i think jensen beeler who runs um, asphalt and rubber uh, they had been talking about doing a podcast because at that time there weren't really uh, 
many podcasts on the sport um, with people like in the paddock, you know. I think there were a couple mm -hmm. of podcasts, but maybe not with like, you know, journalists who were there and who saw and spoke to the riders after the race and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it was those, those guys have been trying to get it off the ground for a while. And then I sort of got into the paddock at a, a fortunate time. Um, and I was have been freelance all along, basically. Um, so I was able to, to join forces with those guys. Um, and then I think it's, it's just taken us a few years to really hone kind of our lineup and uh, our approach and maybe just get a little more savvy in terms of uh, being concise, keeping things to one hour for every show. And, um, uh, you know, I think it helps that we're all, we're all good pals as well. Like, I mean... Um, uh, I sort of mentioned one or two of the guys that sort of helped me out whenever I came into the paddock, but I was also super fortunate um, that there were, there was a really nice group of like English speaking journalists and photographers there that I kind of became friends with that first year as well, like David Emmett, uh, like Steve was there, um, a couple of others like Adam too, Adam Wheeler, who works for, he runs On Track Off Road. Uh, he also lives in Barcelona as well. Um, and, you know, like whenever we go away, we generally, I mean, it's, it's a bit different in COVID times, but pre-COVID times, we would always stay, you know, together in like a house, like an Airbnb, we would split the cost of that. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like a weekend away with your mates in some respects. Um, pretty fortunate. I remember when I was doing those two years in Superbikes, I generally didn't really know anyone because I wasn't doing it super regularly, the people that I did meet at the, the tracks, it would be nice, but it wouldn't be like, hey, like, let's go out for dinner kind of thing. It would be, you know, you would maybe chat during the day, but it's, man, it's lonely, you know, if you're traveling for work and you sort of stand by yourself and you're eating by yourself in the evenings and stuff, it's not really that much fun, you know? I think it's, it's pretty crucial that you have, uh, you know, people that you can kind of share the experience with. So the fact that I think like David and, and Adam and I, we would generally spend the weekend together we would drive to the track together we would you know work together at the track then we would go home go out for dinner work together at the house afterwards and you know you just build up that relationship so uh, i guess we hope that that sort of comes across on the podcast that it's kind of like maybe we know sort of a few things that we're talking about but then also that we have a sort of a easygoing uh air about us and uh, which we're not too scared to take the piss out of one another. Um, I think that's also maybe something that we're, we're looking to achieve with that. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's good. Yeah, and, and that was another thing, man. Honestly, there was there was times where we thought, like, should we just pack this in? This isn't going anywhere. Um, and, you know, we sort of reached the stage where we would get a certain number of listens and it just plateaued. And there was a good two or three years where that sort of plateaued and we were like, this is a lot of effort for, you know, yeah, it's a lot of effort, and where is this going? That was kind of a thing. But I think in the last, we, we, we've made a few conscious decisions to, like, right, we have to do it every week. We have to do it with a certain level of quality, and it's picked up a little bit from there. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's something that I'm glad we persisted in doing. But again, goes to show chemistry as well in that, that you could relate that with the commentary and paddock pass. Like, the, the chemistry is pivotal for you guys to actually maintain that audience there to feel like again they're not listening to a podcast where two guys are sort of forced to be in the room with one another they can like right. you know mm -hmm. like 
I think I speak for everybody listening that does listen or has listened or will listen to the pod, uh, Paddock Pass. Like, you don't at all feel like it's forced or stiff or anything. It's very fluent. It's very, you know, mm-hmm. easy to listen to, which is what you want. You don't want a podcast that's like you've got to put it on because you listen to some of the episodes. You want to put it on and it'd be like you're in the room with them. It's very kind of you to say. Yeah. Thank you. That's all right. I wouldn't say if it wasn't true, but that's just, <laughs> that's just me. Um, on that point with the podcast, do you have any favorites in terms of any that you've done? Because, I mean, I don't want to, you know, not to compare, but I, I think, Matt, I could be wrong, but I think they do edges in terms of quality of, uh, you know, the, rep- the repertoire it's- is a bit, is a bit, you know, <laughs> higher up the list compared to us. We don't really have. That's no. like compare. That's like comparing a Bugatti to a Peugeot, the car that's out on your street right now. <laughs> I wouldn't say that at all, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You're being very hard on yourselves. Yeah, if you saw the kind of ragtag bunch of uh, hopeless idiots that we all are in real life i think you would revise your opinions fairly quickly well you're making a great assumption on us then because i don't think we're, I think we're far behind well the, the fact that you're using this uh, advanced technology discord that's completely new to me i mean this this kind of makes me think that you guys are in this kind of technical sort of magical land that uh, we've yet to discover so what do you guys use out of interest like uh zoom just zoom yeah Okay. Yeah. And then we record it. We have like a recorder yeah. and we send that off to someone. Jensen edits that, puts it together. Yeah. yeah. Well, with this, I just get the, yeah. everything together. Like you don't have to send anything. It'll just all do it. Right. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Is there any like particular episode or like moment from the podcast that like really sticks out to you? Like first time you cracked a hundred listeners or a guest you had on something like that? Uh, it's a good question. Um, oh, you know, we started doing this thing last year, like where, whereby we would allow, basically you can subscribe uh, to the podcast on Patreon. And if you subscribe mm-hmm. a certain amount of money, you get access to uh, daily podcasts during a race weekend. Uh, we, this is a new feature that we introduced for 2021. And um, honestly, the fact that we were like speaking to each other pretty much every day during a race weekend then doing a podcast after the race and then doing a follow-up podcast four days after the race uh, it all just blends into one honestly mate um i wouldn't say there's one thing that stands out in particular i mean everyone every single one seems to follow a, a sort of a loose pattern you know we take the piss out of david then we take the piss out of David some more. Then we talk racing, and then you know someone makes a couple of snide remarks about David. So um, I can't really differentiate one from the other, uh, if I'm being honest. Um, we managed to speak to Danilo Petrucci uh, last week, mm-hmm. I think it was, and he was just he was uh, very disarming as always, very very kind and uh, generous and fun and uh, witty. So that was uh, that was cool. That, that's one that sticks out that we did recently. What a guy. Like, that that man, I don't, like, if you hate Danilo Petrucci, then never speak to me ever again. Like, I just don't know what about that bloke you <laughs> yeah. cannot like. I mean, I think the only person that's ever really got on the bad side of him, if memory serves me right, is Aleish. I 
think it was Aleish at Austria that one year. Was it 2020 where Danilo was like, well, he stuck the middle finger up a couple of times, but like, I don't think it was best <laughs> pleased. I think it was Q1 or something, if memory serves me right. Um, yeah. And then at Saxon Ring, I remember him turning around and giving somebody else the middle finger. But he's just, huh. he, he's one of those people that I think if a lot of people did that, like Aleish to use as an example, people would probably be like, oh, it's a bit, you know. Whereas Danilo Petrucci, you just can't hate that guy. He's such a lovable character. He's got everything about him. He's just, he's got energy. He's got charisma. He's got, he's got pace. He's, you know, he's, he's got balls to go and do Dakar, win a stage at Dakar. Like mm-hmm. credit to the bloke because, I mean, just on, I've said it a couple of times on the on the podcast. People who are newer fans, um, like yourself, Matt watch Danilo Petrucci mm-hmm. and go, oh, he's on a factory Ducati and then he goes to Tech 3 and then he then he leaves and you think, oh, he's just on his way out or whatever. But that guy rode an absolute nail of a bike for like two or three years that was his only opportunity to kind of get into GP. And he just rode the wheels off of it um, and had some horrible, horrible, horrible races on it. So like for that, I credit him as uh, alone. He didn't exactly have the most direct route into gp he had to really slug it out for a long long period and yet even after all that he's this like bouncy character that's just again so lovable so i don't think there's a bad word to say about him well i don't know if you can comment more on that neil having you know no i I generally agree with you yeah i think one of the things you notice about being in, in the paddock is that uh a lot of the time you're dealing with people that are kind of weirdly fully formed by the time they're 22 23 and they're talented they're wealthy they're famous and they seem to kind of possess a lot of physical and mental attributes which obviously make them quite special in the sport and i mean i don't really have those things i definitely didn't have those kind of attributes when i was 21 or 22 uh so you know it's like well i can't really imagine being like that like what is that situation like whereas petrucci i think one of the reasons he's so popular is because you can kind of relate to him because he was a guy that admitted the feeling like out of place in the class when he first rode there he spent the first couple of years of his career in moto gp questioning whether he should be there thinking maybe i should quit because i'm not quite good enough um and these are things where i think everyone or you know the the majority of people feel that way in some in some time in a job they've been in or you know i feel that still sometimes you know when i'm in the the paddock i'm like god do i really is this i really belong here um and the fact that uh you know he managed to reach such highs despite possessing that kind of self-doubt at certain points in his career i think that is something that marks him out is uh you know he's not your your average elite motorcycle racer yeah he's a guy that has trodden a, a very unique kind of path. Um, so yeah, I think that's another reason why he was uh, he was so revered, so well liked. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that yeah. if okay, for, so for example, for me, if I ever saw Maverick Vinales come out on a Saturday evening, um, and prior to a race said, you know, I think the bike's been awful this weekend, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I would kind of know that. He's sort of already not given up because they ne- they never like give up. Don't get me wrong; they're always 
absolutely on it, but I would almost accept the fact that he's on he's on the the decline like that weekend. But for me, Danilo is one of them people that his press officers have probably always been like, you know, say that it's you don't say it, it's that bad, but he will say it as it is. But you kind of go, but he'll still he'll still you know get something out of it, or he won't he won't beat himself up. Do you know what I mean? He'll just say, no, the back's been crap this weekend or whatever, but, you know, is what it is. <laughs> like, he, he's very like, I'll say as it is, but I'll work with it. Whereas a lot of riders, not just Maverick, if it's on the decline in a weekend, you don't, you really see that sort of spring back. Whereas Danilo, I don't know, he's just sort of got that like gritty character that, you know, he, yeah, he's a, a lovable guy with the helmet off, but even on it, like you were saying, Neil, like in the first couple of years, I don't blame him for contemplating it because of the performance of that bike. You you wouldn't, you'd have never done anything on that bike with Marquez on it. Do you know what I mean? Like nobody could have got that bike to the front. Um, and to, again, just he's he's only where he is now and got where he, he did through not kind of, oh, I'm on, I'm on a bad bike, so I'll just throw my toys out of the pram or whatever. Like just stuck at it, stuck at it, you know, grinded out results and knocked on the door of factory Ducati for pretty much every year he was on a Pramac um, until he got it. And fair play to him. Yeah, he didn't probably do what he wanted to do, but I'd say winning your home race at Mugello is definitely a uh, a better career than than most people that, you know, jump jump on a on a MotoGP bike. So, I, I yeah, I don't want to mm-hmm. make it all about him, but just on that point. Being the most recent guest of uh, of Paddock Pass, just what a bloke, what a bloke. I'd love to be able to meet him one day, but I think now he's at a GP, it'd be hard. <laughs> well, if he does do the Moto America thing, I could probably meet him next year, and I'll have that one on you. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, but saying that, that'd be great for you because then you can say that you know, because for, for for Matt being in in pittsburgh it's very hard for you to be at any gp event isn't it for people listening that probably don't know where that is how far is that to austin we were on about this yesterday weren't we how it would be a 22 hour drive (sighs) yeah anybody in the uk want to complain about you know maybe birmingham (laughs) to silverstone or london to silverstone then probably think again next time you say that (laughs) yeah Muscles in my bum just tensed up whenever you said that. <laughs> just imagining the drive. God. I've heard a lot of stuff about like MotoGP at like Indianapolis or like other tracks that they could go to because of how bad Coda was last year. And even Indy would be like a six hour drive for me. Which again, you could say, oh, it's not too bad, but it's still six hours driving. It's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not three hours, two hours, which again is still a trek like that. Two hours is how long it takes me to get from home to Silverstone. Like that's a, it's about two hours. Um, again, when it was Donington, it was brilliant because it was twenty minutes down the road. But yeah, massively grateful when I when I complain like, oh, I wish it was back at Donington because it's twenty minutes. Then you're like <laughs> twenty two hours. And I'm like, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, twenty two hours drive is not ideal is it really but one day i've always, i no. keep saying it one day one day you'll be uh you'll probably be stood alongside neil in the in the 
in a press conference or something, or in the <laughs> in the media side of it, rubbing shoulders with Matt Oxley. Fingers Matt, crossed. So like Matt Oxley will be in the in the paddock until like three thousand and five hundred. Like <laughs> I don't know when that guy will ever ever stop. I can't imagine him not being there. Yeah, yeah, he's part of the part of the furniture. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. Whenever he passes away, you just sort of bury him under a desk and keep working around him. Yeah, but uh, so we with all of our guests, we always ask them to pass the baton to the next guest we should have on. Basically, who do you think? Who should we get a hold of to ha- be our next guest? It can be one um, person, could be multiple people. Should get uh, hold of, like not so- could get hold of, because that they are two <laughs> different things. Yeah, someone I know. Unless you've, unless you've got a contact for the person you're about to suggest, and it'd be very out of our depth. <laughs> then, yeah. <laughs> um, I think could be somebody would... you know, you work with. Or it could just, imagine you know just what? suggest like some regular Joe that just lives next door. <laughs> yeah. Boss, like, yeah, get him on. My neighbor. <laughs> yeah, well, if you want me to put a good word in for you across the road, uh, I yeah. could do that. Yeah. Uh, I guess I could pass the baton to, uh, I guess, to David Emmett. Why not? Man the legend. Yep. The, the kind of the. Feel like he's the the kind of the brain that uh, they wheel out, you know, that's in like a sort of glass tank. <laughs> and it's just kind of like massaged. Maybe at like a MotoGP museum in like a hundred years or something, they'll wheel out his brain and be like, "This brain is the most treasured exactly. brain." Him and like yeah. Martin Reigns and whatnot, like they'll just be like, yeah. "These are, you know, the most yes. valuable brains of motorsport to ever live." This brain produced a four thousand word report on a new Michelin. Slick front tire compounds that was introduced <laughs> to the Indianapolis Grand Prix in 2015. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Dave's uh, Dave is a is a, a great guy, great journalist, and uh, good good crack actually. Like uh, yeah, he's 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 good. He's good fun, good value. So I'll pass the baton to uh, my friend from the Netherlands, and uh, hopefully we can get him off the bike that he finally got. <laughs> In order to do the podcast, because that was an epic journey of just every week. Did you look at a bike? Well, no. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can't believe that uh, it took that long. Um, and I can't believe he went for the rather boring option um, that he did <laughs> yeah. at the end of it all. I thought at least, you know, after the amount of um, the amount of contemplating and thinking about things that you would have maybe just gone a bit daring and bought a Ducati or MV or something like that. But um, now he went for the, the plain old practical BM, which, you know, fair. Yeah. And with that, you, you're getting your motorcycle license. Right. So was, cause it just seems like being around motorcycles, like you would have had that a lot sooner. Why <laughs> are you waiting until now? I know it's a question I ask Matt myself every day. I'm like, why didn't you do this when you were like 17, you tit? Um, but <laughs> I, I kind of moved away like from home uh, when I was 18, and I kind of just lived in like cities like all my life. Right. And uh, you know, there's yeah, there's no like big practical need to. I mean, obviously, uh, to a certain extent, there is, but yeah, just um, never, I never did it really. Yeah, which is uh, which is silly. Um, 
so yeah, I'm in the, in the early stages of getting that now. So hopefully by the middle part of this year, I'll be uh, maybe taking a few trips on two wheels to, uh, to a MotoGP race, which would be pretty cool. Um, and exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Doing a bit of cross country. Um, yeah. One day in the saddle and then rocking up. I think that would be pretty cool. So, uh, so yeah, that's the, that's the aim for this year. Whatever you do, and do you have any? I've been told to tell you this. Well, not told to tell you this, but I've been told to tell anybody that thinks about doing any cross-country travel, especially bikers, in um, in Switzerland. If you ever go through Switzerland as part of your traveling, um, my dad told me that a the I don't know if you've heard of the podcast uh, Chasing the Racing, but they right. um, yep. they had a guest on that said that they went through Switzerland and they were caught like speeding probably like five k's above the speed limit or whatever got pulled over and the bikes were just completely taken away from them and they were fined like thousands, like eight eight thousand euros or something. Five oh six thousand euros and the bikes were like, you're not getting them back until you're out of the country. <laughs> You'll net you then they, they got banned from riding in Switzerland um and, and had mm. to get somebody to like basically come and fetch their bikes for them to get them out of the country. So Jeez. Just a note for you, um, and anyone listening. Steer if you clear are, of Switzerland. If you go in Switzerland, abide by the rules. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, that's not could that's it, not a lie. That's that's a legitimate thing that happened. I'd, I'd, I can't quote the guest or the episode or whatever, but that is fact. That's they they don't they don't take they don't take any uh, prisoners in Switzerland. Well, they 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 literally do, but they don't um, take any shit. Is that, I think the way of putting it because they don't race in Switzerland, do they? Oh, is it is it now legal that you can race in Switzerland? I know you couldn't, could you? You you never used to be able to. Well, prior to a certain year, but they banned it, didn't they, for a while? Racing in Switzerland, right? Um, right. Racing okay, especially. But yeah, just a just a note for you. <laughs> don't don't heads up. Yeah, okay. Go to Switzerland, <laughs> thinking that you're uh, Zarco, then wait until you get right, to Spain yeah, and then keep... give it full gas. But yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll do so that, do you yeah. have uh have you picked out like what your first bike will be or is that something you'll i've kind of got my eye on um you know those little ktm rc 390s uh okay they're quite they just look like tasty little bikes that would be real fun to ride around the city um so yeah i think i would like to start off one of those do a bit of hooning up and down the coast here and <laughs> then uh maybe get I mean, it would be. I feel it would be silly just to jump on something like a bigger capacity straight away. You know, mm. get a, get a year's worth of experience. Um, I used to ride like um, a wee scooter around the place. Um, one of the places I lived before, you know, didn't actually really need to have a bike license or a license of any kind <laughs> to to ride the scooters there. So I kind of took advantage of that. Um, but yeah, so I feel you need to just make your way up in steps before jumping on. Like mm -hmm. a, 750 or something you know yeah do you never use scooters around like tracks or anything if you're going from i mean i know you don't spend a lot of time out on track or is that more just the case of you just walk out or whatever like if you are yeah i mean i think that's just uh if you're like a photographer or a rider coach you know then you know you need to be a certain place on the track at a certain time and uh and a, a scooter is obviously pretty important to that but um now like not really that uh that important for for me you know yeah plus you know got to a stage in my life where you need to actually walk uh 
Otherwise, you know, you can feel my heart sort of gradually slowing down a bit. So it's important <laughs> to get the steps in also. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. It's a fair point yes. to why you don't get a scooter, but we'll see about that when you've got your uh, <laughs> when you've got your KTM and then you no longer even go to like the shop down the road and you're like, Well, you know, I've not rode a bike for all my life, so I've got to make most of that and then you know, you'll be complaining exactly. about not well yeah. to walk as far anymore because you won't be doing the steps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been a pretty, uh, pretty lanky person, uh, I would say, you know, most of my life. So if you suddenly see someone gradually filling out, you'll know exactly what happened. <laughs> Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to do my bike license and then just not walk anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Note take. It's an idea. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I think that'll do it for today's episode. Um, Neil, we wanted to say thank you again for joining us, for gracing us with your presence and your deep, soothing voice. Now everyone can just go to sleep. Use this power, Use this episode to help lull you to sleep. I do that for him every week anyway, just so you don't worry about that. <laughs> Just listen to Bono and Neil's soothing voice. Just remember, you're floating down a river (laughs) at great speed. Everything is relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so with that, keep the throttle pinned.